Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Hi, it's Dean Yates here, host of the Mindharma podcast. I'm doing the introduction because my next and final guest for this year is Dr. Sive Joyce. I was delighted when Sive and her husband, Jamie Watson, the co-founders of Mindharma, invited me to host this podcast series. It seems fitting then to finish with a chat with Sive. What struck me when I met Sive a few years ago was her extraordinary knowledge of workplace mental health, combined with a passion and empathy I'd never encountered from someone in this field before. Sive has played a key role in much of the groundbreaking academic research in Australia into workplace mental health. She did her PhD on mindfulness-based resilience training for emergency services personnel. She has a master's in clinical neuropsychology. Sive has also treated people with work-related psychological injury and trauma in her private practice for more than a decade. And she worked on the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, supporting survivors and commission staff. It is all this experience that gives Sive a rare insight into workplace mental health. I hope you enjoy this podcast, which focuses on resilience and a little bit of Sive's personal journey. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their ancestors, elders, and Aboriginal leaders, past, present, and emerging. Hi, Saif. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Dean. Pleasure to be here. Saif, can you explain what resilience means in language that ordinary folks will understand? So resilience essentially reflects our ability to adapt during periods of uncertainty, change or adversity. So when we're really essentially dealing with a lot of stress or challenges in our daily life, that's what resiliency actually involves. And it can fluctuate over time, which is what some people don't realise, that it can go up and down. When did you first come across the concept of resilience? Was it like a light bulb moment for you? I wouldn't necessarily say it was a light bulb moment. I would, I guess what comes to mind is I was working, you know, previously I was running a lot of group therapy programs, inpatient and outpatient programs. And during this time, um, this is well before I started at the Black Dog Institute, but I was really working with people who were really struggling. So they were either recovering from trauma, they'd been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or they had been struggling with a common mental health condition such as depression or anxiety or both and I was genuinely struck by how well some of these people had been doing to the point till they got to a tipping point and even when they were in therapy or having an inpatient stay I was really you know at times taken aback how hard they were working on rebolstering some of their internal resources or what they had previously been using to help them navigate the ups and downs in life despite going through some really difficult and I mean things that are hard to even contemplate that a human being can survive going through and I found that remarkable about how what is it that is helping these human beings manage these challenges and then on top of that (laughs) having this willingness to show up to therapy. So I was also running one-on-one therapy sessions with clients. And even when people were really at their lowest, there was still this something within them that really wanted to push forward and address unresolved issues or learn new skills and strategies, add to their toolbox in terms of how they're managing. And that was, you know, that takes tremendous courage to show up 
when you're suffering and speak initially with a complete stranger. So that was my probably my initial introduction to resilience. This Wow, these people really wanted to um, address these difficulties in their life wholeheartedly. Wow, fascinating, Saif. Um, what about the myths about resilience? What are those myths? I guess this leads naturally into the myths about resilience. There's some idea, like a lot of ideas out there about resilience, that resilience means that you're tough, that you inherit it, that you either have it or you don't have it, that it's a stable personality trait. These are all myths about resilience, that being resilient means that you can go it alone in life and manage the ups and downs and come through tough experiences completely unscathed. And that is complete bunkum to be honest you know it's probably been fueled initially by lack of research you know really psychological research essentially in this area um and then also culturally you know this idea that in Australia I think there can be this culture of you know you toughen up and you get on with things or this stoic approach to life and isn't that wonderful and where I grew up in Ireland you know I grew up in the country there's some really tough folks around surviving country life and uh, that kind of myth can really fuel this idea that you need to just go it alone through life which in fact ironically undermines your resilience and undermines your psychological health. You're talking about uh, research there. You, you've spent years researching resilience. Can you talk a little bit about that research and what you've discovered? Sure. So I guess one of the interesting things that we discovered was, in fact, not just these myths, but that resilience is this really interesting and complex concept that there are a number of different things that contribute to our resiliency over a lifetime. And Essentially, what we did was we carried out a really large meta review looking at all of the different things that are out there aimed at enhancing adaptive resilience, enhancing our ability to cope with adversity in a healthy way. And what we found was the evidence suggests that certain skills and strategies that we can learn as human beings over time can actually bolster our resilience. So quite the opposite of what had been out there prior. And, and in terms of the components of resilience, can you sort of um, are they are they things that you can uh, detail? Can you can you separate them out? Sure. So when we first looked at this, you know, I wanted to take look at it from the grounds up, and so we did that big review. But I was also looking at other. What are the biological studies saying? What are, what is the neuroscience saying about resilience? And so there, there is some research out there highlighting that yes, genetics can play a role, and our developmental environment as we grow up can impact our resiliency such as whether we've been exposed to trauma as a child or we experienced childhood adversity, as well as our neurochemistry, whether there um, were certain unique impacts to our neurochemistry or neurological functioning that may impact resilience. So all of these factors together can impact our resiliency. However, what also was emerging more and more, particularly in the last two decades, um, thanks to research in the psychological field, um, was the impact of what we call psychosocial factors or psychosocial resilience factors, the things that can protect and nourish and cultivate our resiliency. You know, and there are a number of different factors. One is social support, how frequently we are accessing our social networks. Another is actually understanding our emotions, that we're not robots, that we are emotional beings. 
But why do our emotions emerge? And when they do emerge, how do we actually look after our emotions? How do we interact with our inner world of thoughts and emotions? So understanding our emotions, having a strong sense of purpose is also linked to resilience. So when we have that sense of purpose, it can guide us, it can almost serve as an anchor when we're going through a tough time, when we know what we stand for. Also, you know, having things like a level of mindfulness, healthy coping strategies, Um, And having an optimistic outlook towards life are all kind of considered resilience resources. So can you just talk about uh, resilience in your own personal life? You you know, you had a you had a period where you um, you experienced burnout and and vicarious trauma as a result of what you do for a living. Could you Mm -hmm. talk about how Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Look, I would say, you know, on one level, there's a great irony to being halfway through your PhD on resiliency and then suddenly realizing, oh, my God, I'm actually so exhausted and run down and burnt out. And during my PhD, like many of my my colleagues who are psychologists that I was working with during the Black Dog Institute, you're not just doing your PhD. PhD is a full time job on one level, but you also have to earn a living because the the. the scholarships aren't that amazing. So I was working clinically like I had been for the previous eight years. And I was, I had created the startup, which is Mind Dharma, was previously Royal Mind Coach. And I was working on that with my husband. And then I was also doing this RCT. And it was a lot, there was a lot of work happening. And I was also doing additional training in the background, which is what is expected of psychologists to keep up their registration. So there was a lot unfolding for me, a lot of work And I actually had scheduled some additional training in my IRS meditation teacher training. And I'd taken this week to go up to the Gold Coast to um, work with one of the senior teachers up there and, and learn from them. And during that time, probably because I was slowing down and I was doing so much meditation during this training... Uh, I was receiving, not just giving. I realized that my self-care plan, which I had been more diligent with prior, had fallen away and my body was really run down and I was absolutely exhausted. So I'd promised myself that I was going to take certain things off my plate. But when I returned to Sydney and I started writing some papers for my PhD, so I was trying to get some papers published, what really struck me was my cognitive fatigue I couldn't quite you know I was and I think a lot of my clients have described this to me too over the years and when they've struggled with anxiety or depression that you know the the quickness of the mind wasn't as much you know it wasn't as fluid it wasn't working and that was very frustrating for me it was a signal that this isn't going to go away overnight even if you make a promise to yourself um and so I guess I was very much confronted with, well, how are you going to make the skills that you teach people in one-on-one therapy and that you advocate for in Royal Mind Coach and Mind Dharma? How are you going to put these into practice much more diligently? So I would use them, but I probably wasn't as diligent with my self-care because what would happen, and I think this happens for anyone who works in service to others' work, whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, or a psychologist, or a social worker, is that the the work is so important to you. And in my work with clients, it was so important to me, I wanted to do right by them, that that was getting the best and the bulk of my energy. And there was no energy left for me. So what did you do in in practical terms, though, uh, 
did you yeah. shut your did you did you close your private practice for a while? And, and when did all this take place? So this happened towards the end of 2017. And you know, one of the first things I did was talk about it with my husband, Jamie. And I said, look, and he had been encouraging me to slow down for a while. He's a very naturally mindful bloke. And he's like, you know, you're you're just going to completely exhaust yourself. And I was, you know, I was sleeping sometimes 14, 15 hours a day um, I'd go to bed early and I'd just be conked because my body was so exhausted and run down and I did see a GP and I got you know got some tests on and he confirmed you know he said you know you're you're uh, you're struggling you're really struggling and this isn't going to go away so what I did do is I spoke to my PhD supervisor Sam Harvey and I said look I need some time away and you know anyone who works in in a private practice knows that you, you can't just shut down a private practice, <laughs> you know, and, and I also want to do right from some of the people I've been working with some for a couple of years, because they've been on a significant recovery from trauma, but I was very open and honest. Um, that was September. I said by December, I'll be closing for at least six months. Wow. Um, and most of my clients were really, really understanding. In fact, when I did come back to the practice, I had clients emailing me saying, you know, you're really walking the talk. And this has made a big difference to how I am actually engaging my own self-care plan because I, I know it's not just talk. Um, but it was, it was so scary because it takes such hard work to A, even just become registered as a psychologist, but also to build up your practice and to build trust with people and trust with other doctors and psychiatrists who refer to you. So it was definitely one of the most challenging things I'd ever done. I'd been living in Australia maybe 16, 17 years at that point. I hadn't stopped studying bar one year. <laughs> Which sounds, you know, when you're hanging out with a whole bunch of high achievers at UNSW and Black Dog, and that's all really normal, you know, you just think that's just what you do, you know. Um, whereas to me, it was a bit of a wake-up call that I'd been treating my body like a second-class citizen and running myself into the ground. And so, you know, I was very fortunate that I had savings put away. But by the time I returned my last year of the PhD, I took probably two months off completely, two no, maybe three months off completely from the PhD to just rest. And but when I returned, my scholarship was over, so I had to I had to rely on my savings, and I knew that I would need really strong boundaries and a really good self care plan to help me complete that PhD. And if I wanted to return to the work as a psychologist too, so there, there were really big learning moments. And I used a lot of compassion-focused meditation, a lot of compassion-focused meditation. And I really started this interesting practice, which the wonderful neuropsychologist Rick Hansen talks about and the psychologist Tara Brack talks about, where you're welcoming goodness or joy into your life just a little bit each day, because joy felt very um, elusive to me at that point. I was so run down. But I would just look for little moments where I could really appreciate a beautiful tree or a bird or my brother's laughter. And I'd really, with, my, with the help of mindfulness, be fully absorbed in that and allow some of that joy to enter. And that, again, I, knew, I also knew that was a resilient strategy, but I was almost, <laughs> I was almost using myself as a, 
another kind of study. How can I work all these different strategies and bolster myself up? But the biggest learning point was seeing how boundaries facilitate that. So self-care then emerged for me as this really interesting resilience resource that needs to be considered as a foundation for everything that we do in life if we want to take care of ourselves and have the energy to honour all the other values in our life. And I probably hadn't given myself permission to do that before, to make my own self-care top of my list and see how every other value, including my work with other people, would benefit from that. Uh, That's great. So thanks for your honesty on that, about your personal (laughs) journey. And I I think you've earned some street cred, obviously, with your clients as well, by walking the walk, as as you say. In terms of building resilience, how hard is it to build resilience? This is not something, right, that you can just flick a switch, is it? Absolutely not. Yeah, and that's it's something that also emerged from our, our, our research on resilience too, that one-off training just does not work, that we need to develop these skills and strategies and practices and then honour them as part of our daily life. So if we approach them as uh, life skills, And we nourish them. And I often refer to resilience as being like a garden, you know, a garden that needs tending to, it needs watering to survive and then thrive. And then we need to kind of see resilience in this way. So you're right. We can't just flick a switch and expect ourselves to be resilient. In fact, we need to cultivate it. Much like going to a gym, we don't develop strong biceps by going once or twice. The brain develops resiliency through these different strategies when we're engaging with them regularly. And because it's taking advantage of neuroplasticity, our brain's ability to develop and build new neural networks And that's like with any skill. So I guess that's a myth too that we need to be aware of that one-off training somehow will bolster your resiliency and keep you going when in fact, far from it, we need to be diligent and regular with our practices. Let's talk about uh, COVID. Obviously, this is is a a crisis in Australia and elsewhere and, and workplaces are having to adjust, employees are having to adjust. How can building resilience help both employees and an organization? I think we need to be really mindful of the fact that this is something that hasn't unfolded in our lifetime. So when we look at what resilience aims to do, resilience is our ability to adapt in the face of adversity, change and uncertainty. So there's all the ingredients there in a pandemic of challenge. Regardless of how much resilience training you've actually done, it is going to challenge each of us in different ways. And so I would say workplaces do have an obligation to provide evidence-based training and strategies and practices to best support employees, develop and bolster and nourish their ability to adapt in a way that is helpful to them. And so you can see it as a bit of a partnership, you know, that if workplaces through their workplace mental health strategy can provide the appropriate training, then we need to ensure that workplaces are actually allowing the time and supporting employees do this training. But the employee has to show up and commit to completing that training over a period of time. The benefits are that long term, we would expect such initiatives to really protect mental health because greater levels of resiliency have been associated with um, higher levels of well-being and psychological health. 
whereas lower levels of adaptive resiliency have been associated with poor mental health outcomes. I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive. You know, you can have, as I mentioned earlier, some of the most resilient people I have met, which probably, as I said, sparked my interest in resilience, are people who've really struggled with mental health conditions. But the difference is that they've actually done a lot of self-work. They've really honed their strategies. And over time, they get better at noticing when they're going off track. And so they then reset the boundaries and start to bolster their resilience strategies again. Did you think the word resilience has gotten a little bit hijacked in some in some in the in the corporate sphere a little bit, uh, become a little bit of a, a buzzword that doesn't really mean much for employees? Yes. I absolutely think that's correct because it's not being looked at in the context of the research. And sometimes, and again, the, those myths that are out there, which is similar to the stigma around mental health, it's still so strong that this idea that resilience is being tough and being able to cope with everything and anything versus it actually being adaptability and our ability to use different strategies to bolster our adaptability. So if if resilience is being talked about in terms of mental toughness and just being able to move through challenges unscathed, then people pick up on that and we will resist it because it doesn't necessarily make sense or we will, you know, develop a sense that, well, geez, I'm never going to be like that. I don't have the ability, so I'm just trying to fly under the radar here. I think the other thing that can happen in the space of workplace mental health is that, um, you know, there's been incredible research done on understanding culture and good culture and understanding best practices in workplaces. And there are some genuine concerns that if employers just use resilience training, then they feel that can let themselves off the hook. And that is uh, unfortunate, but I have seen that too, where people offer a couple of programs and they're doing a tick the box approach to their workplace mental health strategy. And in the long term, that's only going to cause more suffering. So workplace mental health, you, we can't just do resilience training, but we can offer those proactive initiatives. But we need to make sure that the other building blocks are there to creating a mentally healthy workplace. How would you uh, sum up the MindArma resilience training program? MindArma is an evidence-based program. So it teaches a lot of the strategies that I mentioned earlier. So we're teaching these core resilience strategies that we know from the research um, can help us bolster adaptability and resiliency. So it teaches mindfulness, it teaches a range of cognitive strategies, and this, I guess, insights into how we understand our own brain and our own minds. So understanding that not, not all thoughts are helpful and how do we develop certain cognitive strategies to help us step back and tune into those inner world of thoughts and emotions and the ones that are helpful to us. And also these other practical strategies of, well, how do we cope effectively when challenging emotions emerge? How do I process and integrate that emotion in a really healthy way versus avoiding it and pushing it away, which is very natural for us to, as human beings to do, just keep pushing away the, the really tough emotions. And so it, it has this, uh, you know, very short modules that are we have 10 of them that address these different skills and then brings them all together you know we also touch on we have a whole module essentially that looks at self-compassion as a resilience practice 
And so by the end of the program, you reflect on all of these different strategies and skills that you have been exploring and you choose the ones that resonate with you. And this is something that I, you know, was very important to me when I was researching this area, but also in my work one-on-one with people. We'll, we'll explore lots of different strategies, but it's important that a person chooses the one that res- ones that resonate with them because then they're more likely to continue to honor them and weave them in and out of their life when they're faced with um, tough experiences. And, and last question for you, Sai. Mind Armour is being used by some very diverse workforces. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and just some of the feedback you've gotten on the program? Sure. So, I mean, first off, the program was informed by a randomised control trial with Fire and Rescue in New South Wales. And so the firefighters were the first group to have access to the pilot program. And now they have their own tailored customized version so we have a universal version that's been at you know that's can be accessed by any workplace but we also have the opportunity to work closely with the workplaces and then customize some of the content for the unique stresses that appear in that workplace so we recently launched with ambulance uh, victoria and they're an example of a workplace as paramedics and their workers experience unique stressors on on the job and so we're able to tailor the content and work closely with ambulance victoria to really ensure that the programs be tailored for their workers. We've also worked um, with your old colleagues at Reuters. Um, the program has been, since April, been made available to frontline workers in five of the local health districts in New South Wales, as well as New South um, Wales Health Pathology. We've been working with the University of New South Wales and their new graduate lawyers. So there's a a tailored version for graduate lawyers as they start off in their career to really develop some skills to support their own well-being and mental health and resiliency. So a lot of different groups. And we, I have to say, each and every time we work with a group, we learn something. We learn something new. We learn something different. And we take that and try to weave it into the changes in the program. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining me today and sharing your expertise on resilience. My pleasure, Dean. Thanks so much for having me. The Mindama podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain, unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises, and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindama into your workplace.